Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, go ahead and move back to your seats. Good to see you all. We're continuing on in our series called Eureka. Um, Our yearly vision for this year is from the throne uh, flows a river of renewal. So we're really examining what are some of the things that bear renewing. And um, one of the things that I felt rather uh, early on in the process of seeking the Lord for vision for this year uh, was our engagement with the Old Testament. And um, Megan talked a lot about it a bit from her community group, our community group, we talked about it a good bit this week how many of us have a really uncomfortable uh, relationship with the Old Testament. Either it's too difficult for us or it seems too, like it's not useful or helpful or it's confusing, and so we abandon it altogether. Or sometimes we put kind of an unhealthy stock in the Old Testament almost at the expense of being Jesus' followers. So last week I kind of laid out uh, you know, the big vision for the series and how it is that we want to renew our vision for the Old Testament so you can go you can catch up with, on the podcast if you want to listen to that. But this week, we're going to begin working through some of these different moments in the Old Testament where we encounter Christ. Um, so the, the whole approach for this series is looking at what we call a Christophany, which is evidence of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. If he has been from the beginning, then we can go back through Scripture and we can see evidence of Christ in that. And we're also going to be looking at some typologies, which is where... We're looking at certain people in the scriptures where they are impartial, this kind of person. Jesus is them in the fullness. So I'm going to pray, and we'll get right into this. Hi, Steve. (laughs) Um, Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here and that you're with us, that you're for us, you're not against us. Lord, I was just, as it was, we were praying even before the gathering today, just thinking about how... Um, we want to be a people who have such a high opinion of worship, of prayer, of scripture, of sacrament, um, that we enter into this place hungry to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would not satisfy us, but that you would, encountering you would make us hungrier. Like when we meet you, we want to know you more, and we're more single-minded in our pursuit of you and your kingdom. Lord, if we're honest, for so many of us, the problem is that we're already full and we're already comfortable and we're complacent. But would you stir up in us a deep hunger and thirst for things of you, for any way that we might grow close to you? So Lord, be with us today as we uh, continue this journey um, through these ancient scriptures, looking for evidence of Christ, that it would draw us into a sense of awe and wonder at who you are and who you've created us to be. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning, there was Apsu and there was Tiamat. And they hovered over the watery chaos and Apsu and Tiamat, they kind of co-mingled, and they created a bunch more gods. But Tiamat did not like this. She felt there was a lot of competition. And so all these rumors started to happen about who's going to kill who, and 
there's recommendations that they need to start killing each other, and all these gods start to fight, and eventually somebody murders Apsu and moves into his body, as you do, you know, free rent, and they create inside his body Marduk. In the heart of Apsu, Ea creates Marduk and says, my son, my son. And when in the question comes arise, who's going to go and kill Tiamat, Marduk has chosen to destroy her. Because she creates these chimeric beings and, and her, takes the god Kingdu and kind of puts him in charge. And there's this big battle and she's, she's tearing through all of her own progeny. But Marduk comes forward to be the champion. Marduk slays her with an arrow and then he smashes her head with a mace. And then he rips her body in two and out of that he creates the world. Yeah. I don't think VeggieTales covered this one. <laughs> And so Marduk brings order to the chaos of creation by slaying Tiamat. But that's not enough. Marduk recognizes we need some sort of a servant class that can serve the gods. And so he has an idea to create humanity. And so they, they sacrifice the god Kingdu, and out of his blood, they create humanity. So why do I tell you this story, other than it's pretty awesome? Because how you start the story shapes everything. It shapes how you see God. It shapes how you see yourself. And it shapes all of creation. So this story, this is the ancient narrative in the Middle East out of the Babylonian tradition in the Enuma Elish. This is the creation narrative. And this was the dominant narrative in the Middle East when the Old Testament was kind of being compiled or when some of these stories were being written down and condensed into what we knew as the Hebrew Bible. Now imagine growing up, and that's the story that you're told about how everything was created. They're telling you these are what the gods are like. This is the way in which creation came to be. And you would begin to believe that the world is inherently a violent and broken place. That the gods are just like us, just bigger uh, and more powerful. But they have the same kind of skirmishes that we do. They have these same evil and corrupt hearts that we do. And then you believe, okay, well, humanity was just created to blindly serve the gods. That's all we are. We're, we're made of the blood of Kingu, and that is our job, is just to be subservient to these gods. And so that begins to speak to you about yourself, that you're inherently part of a broken, chaotic world, your only role is to blindly serve whatever God uh, exists uh, in your area. And then breaking onto the scene comes an entirely different story written by a very small tribe of people who continue to get beaten up by all of these larger empires that surround them. They're kind of at the center of all of these different civilizations uh, in the known world, and they're constantly being overcome um, ripped away from their homeland, taken into exile, beaten up, and conquered. And this is the way that they choose to tell that same story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. 
So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so that on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. How you start the story shapes everything about what you think about God, about what you think about creation itself, and not least what you think about yourself. Most scholars would say that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are a statement of intent by the Hebrew people. 
to say our God is not like the other gods. Indeed, all of those stories, Genesis 1 to 11, they have their counterparts in Babylonian myth, in Sumerian myth and whatnot, the kind of prevailing wisdom of the day. And so in a very specific way, the Hebrew people are making a political statement in the way that they choose to tell the story because they're making a claim that their God is not like all these other gods, that the creation story itself sets us on a radically different trajectory for understanding the divine. So in their story, contrary to the world coming out of jealousy and strife and brokenness, this God, a God who exists kind of above creation, does not seem to be part of it, but is heavily invested in it, creates out of overflowing joy. That as this God creates, every time there's, there's something new in the world, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates humanity and says, it is very good. This God doesn't create out of competition. This God does not create out of violence. But this God creates out of an overabundance of joy, a desiring to share God's self with creation. And this God brings definition and boundaries and structure through speaking and through breathing. And we see this rhythm in the Genesis poem that God speaks, something is created, and then it's named to be very good. And for us as Christians, believing that God is a Trinitarian God, that God is a community of love, we go back to Genesis 1 and we see the evidence of it there. Not that when it says, let us make mankind in our image, in, in Hebrew poetry, the, to kind of elevate the, the importance of someone, they speak in the plural, so oftentimes it'll say the Abrahams, just to show how important he is. So it's not that bit, but it's actually in the very beginning, that God is present, and the Spirit of God hovers over the water. The word there is like brooding like a bird. Like a, There's a kind of a bird hovering over the water. And then God speaks. And something comes into existence where it wasn't prior. And so for us as Christians, we say, ah, yes, we see the Father. We see the Son in, as the Word of God. And we see the Spirit of God hovering like a dove over the, over the waters. And so this God speaks and begins to bring definition, first through the separation and the order of space, but then filling in that space with animals and plants and finally humanity. And it's interesting to note that in this version of the story, humanity is created not as the blind servants of the God, but as the image of God on earth placed into the dust. The dust is enlivened, as, as we're going to be looking at next week. Jonathan's going to lead us through the Genesis 2 and 3, the creation of uh, Adam and Eve. But this humanity is created with the agency to love. Now, in the Sumerian and the Babylonian stories, the gods were fearful of mankind and how much they were taking over the earth, and so that's often the fight between gods and humanity. But this god says, no, 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 no. Be fruitful, increase, multiply, Go, explore, see the world that I've created for you. Because the more that you go out and you find your place in this world, the more that you help this world to be fruitful and increase, the more my image is, is evident in all of creation. And I think that kind of shapes our first Christophany as we're looking for the pre-incarnate Christ throughout the Old Testament, that Christ, as the Word of God, is the relational creative force that binds together all reality. 
I mentioned last week that so often we grow up with a version of Christianity that says Christ was a guy that was born like right on the cusp of 0 BC and 1 AD, something in there, and then he had 33 years and then he was cut down a little too early in his ministry, uh, and that was it. And that's, that was Jesus. He, was that, he existed for those 33 years. But the, the radical claim of Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity, is no, actually, Christ is there since the beginning. Christ is God and is a person of this Trinitarian God. And so we can kind of break it down this way when we're looking at this story, that God the Father is the origin of all things, that God the Father is the mind, that all of creation comes from a thinking mind that has an idea, but an idea can't just live here. It has to go out into the, into the space, into the watery void in order to create. And so the Son is the Word that as God speaks the word of God goes forth and things are brought into being. So Christ as the Son is the word of God. And this is what we mean, this very complicated line in the Nicene Creed um, where we speak about eternally begotten of the Father. That Jesus isn't a second created God. There was God the Father and then at some point he decided to have a kid and then he did. It's that he's eternally, he's like always since the beginning, he has always been going forth from the Father. Because that's what happens when we speak, right? When you and I, when we speak, something happens. We change things by how we speak. You know, we see this later in the scriptures. It says, by the, the power of the word, there is life and death. You and I, we're capable of speaking things to one another in a way that we can bring life. We can see things be fruitful and increase and multiply in the lives of the, those we love. Or we can speak death and we can close people off to the reality of God and to their own creation. Our words are powerful, and it's because we are made in the image of God. And so Christ, as the word of God, when God speaks, Christ it creates and then sustains and holds the whole thing together. And then thirdly, the spirit of God, that as God breathes into the dust, life comes forth. We even talked about this last week when we are talking about uh, Scripture and talking about... Oops, sorry. Sorry up there. Um, saying all scripture is God-breathed. It doesn't mean that God dictated to each of the writers, okay, you want to write this and you want to say that. It means, no, no, where we encounter scripture, we encounter life. That's what it means to be inspired, to put the spirit into something, is that we are being brought to life. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are right here in the very beginning of the story. Now, there was another story hovering around in the ancient world, in the Greek world, and they had this idea of logos. Logos is the, what we mean words. We say theology. It's words about God. Theology bit logos, theologos. And in the Greek world, the, the logos was kind of the sustaining, animating force in the universe. That the Greeks believed this, this logos kind of held everything together. And they endowed it with an almost kind of godlike sentiment. And there was a lot of Greek philosophers that said, ah, yes, this logos, it's like the animating force that kind of holds together the universe, um, and it's almost worthy of our worship. And in 50 BC, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Philo of Alexandria. He lived in Alexandria, obviously, which is in Egypt. And he was Jewish, but he grew up understanding kind of the, the Greek worldview. And he began to look at this idea of the logos, from his Greek heritage, and he looked at the Hebrew scriptures, and he saw this word of God, and he said, well, this doesn't seem like it's that different. 
And so Philo kind of formulates this idea. He's like, the, the logos is almost, almost like this second God or this, etern- this begotten God that when God speaks, it becomes almost this other entity in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we can kind of call that the logos. And we have significant evidence that the writers of the New Testament read a lot of Philo. And in him, they even considered him a saint in the early church. We begin to see the formulation of this Trinitarian God because he was really close He's marrying this Greek idea of logos with this word that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. And so the writers of the New Testament claimed that this radical vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus was not just a good moral teacher to them. He wasn't a good example to follow. He wasn't simply a political revolutionary. But time and again, they testified that God was present at the, at the beginning of the whole story and that Jesus as the word of God is that which creates and sustains. So I want to show you, this is a really lovely mosaic from uh, a Russian Orthodox church. And I never thought today until today about Jesus creating flamingos, but there you go. I love that. But here's just three scriptures that demonstrate how they saw Christ um, as this word of God. John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And finally, in Hebrews, as we looked at last week, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. If you're trying to explain away why your religious leader just got murdered by the Roman authorities, you don't make the claim that he is the foundation of the entire universe. You you know what I mean? But for some reason, so many of us in the Christian household, we've lost this radical vision of who Christ truly is. That Christ, as the word of God, is the one through whom everything has been created. And this is why I think this is so important, because right now it just sounds like this is like really heady and we're talking Greek philosophy and all this, like blah, 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 let's make it useful. And I say, ah, 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 that's the problem, is we keep trying to make scripture useful. This is why it matters to me. I was talking to a dear friend of mine a couple years ago, and we were talking about the revelation of God, like that God speaks or God reveals something to humanity. And he said, do you believe that God speaks? I said, yes, absolutely, I do. And he said, do you believe that humanity could come to a conclusion other than that which God would speak? And I said, I don't understand the question. And as I began to think about what they were saying, I realized, oh, this person grew up with a version of Christianity that's like a lot of other religions, kind of like the Greeks, a lot like the Babylonians, the Sumerians, where history is just kind of moving along. Time and space are just ambling along, and every once in a while, God shows up, You're probably thinking about maybe the church that you grew up in. You talked like that, right? Didn't God show up today? Oh, my, God really showed up. As in, well, where was he? (laughs) Like if, if, if he is the logos, the animating force that binds together the universe, where was God? 
because we still think like our pagan ancestors, that God lives up on top of a mountain somewhere else, and he's not particularly bothered by us, and we have to do the rain dance in order to get God to pay attention to us, to give us what we want. So God's basically like us. He's pretty self-absorbed, and he's a little petty. And I realized, as my friend asked me this, they, and they grew up Christian, that this was their heritage. This is how they believed the entire universe worked. But for me, the way that I grew up, I, I can't see it as anything other than this, that as Paul says elsewhere, in him we live and move and have our being. That all of creation is revelation from God. That there's what we might call supernatural revelation, sure, that's God operating outside of the laws of, of how the universe works, but there's natural revelation that the way in which the universe operates tells us something about the way that God really is. Because if Jesus is the word of God, then everything created through him is a revelation of God. As the word, he is the bridge between God and creation. And what has always and will always be true of him was revealed in his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is what I love about this Genesis poem, that all created things, like if, if, if there was not the word of God, like every atom in your body would just fly apart. That, I believe that. I believe that is the foundational reality of the universe itself. And what we're even finding in quantum mechanics now is they keep going down to these subatomic particles and the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing, like everything's made out of strings and it's made out of energy, and we all agree on that, but we don't actually know what energy is, which is insane to me. Like, it's just, like, everything at the foundation of everything, it's all the same, and it's all being kind of held together by some sort of force. And this is what I believe is true about Jesus. And if that's true, then we recognize that everything in the world is created to worship God. And everything in the world worships God by being what it was created to be. Palm trees worship God by being palm trees, and hamsters worship God by being hamsters. Praise those little guys. But here's the, here's the crazy thing. Like, palm trees can't choose to not be palm trees, and hamsters cannot choose to not be hamsters. Some dogs, I think, choose not to be dogs. But it doesn't work out for them, and it's more because of what we're putting on them than what they're putting on us. How many of y'all, like, you walk up Park Avenue, and you're like, let me see your cute chihuahua <laughs> in, the, in the cart, you know? And you're like, oh, that's a dog. I'm so sorry for you. And he's probably in there, and he's just like, I was a wolf one time. You know what I mean? He's like, I used to just cross the tundra. And now I'm shivering in this, like, little baby buggy on Park Avenue. <laughs> but all things in creation worship God by being what they were created to be, except for us. Humanity is unique because we can choose to not be what we were created to be. So everything else in creation, stars, bugs, palm trees, whatever, it, is, it worships God because it is what it is created to be. You see like something like in Psalm 19, that's the way it's written. It's like all of this is declaring the glory of God. You're like, that's a good one, right? It's a good one. Just memorize that one. Everything in, in creation creates or it worships because of the way that it was created, except for us. And you wonder why that is. It's because God created us to love. 
And in order to love, we have to be able to choose to not love. And so a lot of times, you know, we, we ask, there's these questions that are asked about why is there evil and why is there sin? It's the risk that God took in creating us to have free will, to choose to love him, which is to say that we choose to come into agreement with what he has created us to be. But he has to risk in order for us to make that claim of love that we have to be able to not love him. And not only does that mean that we deny who God actually is, but it also means that we deny what it means to be a human being. We can be subhuman. Hamsters can't choose not to be hamsters, but we can choose not to be human beings. We can be, choose to be less. We can choose to be other. Because in order to love, we must be able to choose to not love. And it was necessary for us to have that free will, to be that image of God that we were created to be. But it's a tremendous amount of responsibility. And then when we recognize Jesus as the word of God, kind of revealed to us in the person of Jesus in those 33 years of his earthly ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection. It gives us a new context to understand the work of the word, that not only does the word create and sustain, but the word also calls us home. The word renews us. And so when Jesus talks about repentance, he's saying, change the way that you think and come home to the reality of God. Change the way that you think. Come home. Come back. I'm calling you to be human in the way that God has created you to be. And I think that that gives us this beautiful context for the work of Christ on earth. And now we see the work of Christ after his ascension. Because Jesus, as the word of God, sustains and renews us by giving himself to us as daily bread. And we move from word to bread. Bread symbolizing kind of things in the earth being brought back together, being the, the product of the fruit, being fruitful and multiply and increase. And, our, the way, and I don't like the way that a lot of times the scripture puts this is like we rule over creation as if we dominate creation. And that's the problem with humanity is that we keep trying to dominate creation as if we're separate from it rather than being part of it. And the, word, the better translation would be really more something like cultivate. Like cultivate the earth. Help the earth to be fruitful. Because the more fruitful that the earth is, the more the evidence of God is all around us. And so bread for us becomes that evidence of a fruitful earth. But what it is, it's a symbol that's speaking back to, well, at the core, this daily bread is a reminder of the word, that it sustains us, it renews us, it gives us strength. And we begin to realize that all of creation is a gift to us from the word of God. And the renewal that we are offered through Christ as he's bringing us back into relationship with God, as he's teaching us what it means to be fully human, that is a gift. I've been reading this wonderful book called The Voice of the Eagle by John Scotus Ariagena, who was an Irish theologian in the ninth century, and he said, Observe the forms and beauties of sensible things and comprehend the word of God in them. Observe the forms and beauties of sensible things. What is he saying? He's like, go out into the world. And Ariagena is the one that we get this idea. He says that God speaks to us through the big book and the little book. 
The little book, he means the Bible. The big book, he means creation. And we need to read those two things together if we really want to know what God is like. And so he says, go out and observe. Like, watch. Take note of what's happening in the world around you and contemplate the word of God that is revealed to you in those things. If you do so, the truth will reveal to you in all such things only he who made them. Now, if you're like me, sometimes... You read the news or you go out into this world, and it feels like a real fight to see the world the way that it truly is. Sometimes it's a lot easier to believe in the myth of Apsu and Tiamat and Marduk ripping her in half and pulling the world out of her carcass. Sometimes that's a much easier story to believe because we look around the world you know, and, and it just seems like a violent place, a place of strife. And, and, it, and we just believe, you know, that at the core, we're just rotten. Like, people are just rotten. And somebody should just come along and just scrap the whole thing. Like, let's just end the whole human project. And indeed, a lot of you have grown up with a theology where God is just going to burn up the world. And he's just going to throw it all out in the very end because he's just so sick of it, which to me sounds a lot more like Marduk than it does Christ as the word of God. We have to fight to see the world out of the lens of this story, out of the creation narrative, that as God creates, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he creates humanity, he creates you, and he says, it's very good. He says, it's very good. Sometimes people worry if we talk about the foundation of humanity as original goodness, then some way we're diminishing the place of sin and evil because we really want to believe that there's justice and we really get kind of, you know, presented evil every single day. But what happens to you? Like, what happens to how you see yourself if you believe the story doesn't begin with your sin and your brokenness and your evil, but the story begins with how God created you and said, you're very good. You're very, very good, and you are my image bearer. And this doesn't mean that we do away with ideas of sin and evil and death. They are very real, but we put them in their proper context because we start the story in Genesis 1 and not in Genesis 3. So I invite you to stand with me, and we're going to come to the table, this, uh, this ancient sacrament, this sacred act that uh, Christians around the world today uh, and throughout history have participated in that makes this come alive. That as we gather around the table, we're seeing the word become bread, that that bread sustains us and it animates us, but that bread also renews us. And I believe that more and more as we come to the table, the work of Christ, he's doing something in us. He's doing that work of renewal as we take his body and his blood and the bread and the cup into ourselves and it begins to transform us. And so we're gonna pray together. It'll be up on the screen. My dad always calls this one uh, the Star Wars prayer. <laughs> You'll see why. But it kind of draws together so beautifully some of these things that we're exploring in this season. So I'll pray and you pray everything in italic. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. God of all power, ruler of the universe, you are worthy of glory and praise. 
At your command, all things came to be, the vast expanse of interstellar space, galaxies, suns, the planets in their courses, and this fragile earth, our island home. From the primary elements, you brought forth the human race and blessed us with memory, reason, and skill. You made us the rulers of creation, but we turned against you and betrayed your trust, and we turned against one another. Again and again, you called us to return. Through prophets and sages, you revealed your righteous law, and in the fullness of time, you sent your only son, born of a woman, to fulfill your law, to open for us the way of freedom and peace. And therefore we praise you, joining with the heavenly chorus, with prophets, apostles, and martyrs, and with all those in every generation who have looked to you in hope to proclaim with them your glory in their unending hymn. And together we say, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Father, we who have been redeemed by him and made a new people by water and the Spirit now bring before you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his friends and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Remembering now his work of redemption and offering to you this sacrifice of thanksgiving, we remember his death and resurrection as we await the day of his coming. Lord God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, open our eyes to see your hand at work in the world about us. Deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for the solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this holy communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. Accept these prayers and praises, Father, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to you, whom with you and the Holy Spirit, your church gives honor and glory and worship from generation to generation. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So from the first rows to the back, I invite you to come to the table to participate in the word of God. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.